Good morning. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we continue our heart of worship as we now give you our attention, as we pay attention to the written word and the written word spoken. It is our desire, God, that you would open our ears by your Holy Spirit to hear, to understand that these words might nourish us, that we might be refreshed and challenged and educated, and that we might live lives more fitting the calling of Christians. And it is our desire, too, God, that you would please animate and fill the speaker, um, that these words are not uh, a, a solo, a speech, an entertainment, rather that you'd bring life to these words through both the speaker and the hearer by the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this for the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen. In 1974, that was the year I graduated from high school, uh, Death Wish came out. And Death Wish was a vigilante film, starred Charles Bronson. And he's this architect who uh, he, he goes throughout actually five movies uh, trying to uh, be a vigilante and set things straight. So Death Wish came out in 74. In 82, the appropriately named Death Wish 2 was followed uh, in 1985 by Death Wish 3, and then 1987 by Death Wish 4, <laughs> and then surprisingly Death Wish V, or 5, <laughs> came out in 1994, and then Bruce Willis did a remake of the original Death Wish in 2018. So at the time the film was released, um, it was criticized because it was apparently encouraging of vigilante justice, and it was advocating the unlimited punishment of criminals. The irony is that the book that was written that the movie was based on kind of denounced this uh, uh, vigilantism, but the, the film embraced it. And that's what made it resonate with the society at the time, because back in 1970s, there was this growing um, crime rates in the United States, and the and the culture just ate up the idea of that there needed to be vigilantes. Okay, so here's the story. Uh, Charles Bronson stars as uh, Paul Kersey. He's a successful middle-aged architect living in New York City. And one day, his wife Joanna and their daughter are on the way home, and three thugs follow them home, break into the house. They only have seven bucks among them, and so the thugs just have their way. But in the process, the the wife, uh, Joanna, gets gets killed. and so. Uh, Paul Kersey arrives at the hospital. He's devastated to hear this news that his wife has died from the injury. His daughter is kind of comatose because of the violence from, from it all. And so shortly thereafter, he's walking through the streets and he encounters a mugger. And uh, he fights the mugger off with a homemade weapon. The mugger runs away. He's shaken, but strangely... Uh, energized by this encounter. So on the following nights, and through all of the rest of the movie, and through all five sequels, he stalks the streets looking for dangerous, violent criminals, and sure enough, he finds them. Uh, he often baits them, and, and he ends up killing them. That's the whole story right there through, through five sequels, six total films. Well, the interesting thing is you, you find out towards the end of the movie that the district uh, um, attorney and the police commissioner know all along who's the perpetrator, who this vigilante is. But they don't want to do anything about it because it's well-known knowledge that because of this guy being a vigilante, 
that there's a radical decrease in crime in the streets. And so if this information becomes public, there's the fear that the whole city is going to descend into this vigilante justice chaos. So a death wish is your desire for, to either die yourself or your desire for someone else to die. But really, the movie isn't so much about death wish as much as it is vigilante justice, but that wouldn't make such a great title, would it? You know, death wish is a lot more catchy title. Well, vigilantism is the act of, act of uh, enforcing the law or punishing offenses without having the authority to do so. So the word vigilante comes from the word, the adjective, I think it's an adjective, vid, vigilant, and it just means a sentinel, a watcher, and someone who practices vigilantism is practicing justice on their own because they don't believe that the court system, the, the uh, verified justice, can, can do anything about it. So we see elements of vigilante justice in the Bible, too. I mean, if you look back to Genesis um, 34, there's the abduction of, of Dinah, and she gets raped by some men, in she well, by the, the king of Shechem's son. And um, apparently Jacob, Dinah's father doesn't really do anything about it, and so two of his sons, Simeon and Levi, go in and kill all the males and uh, ransack the city of Shechem. And then there's the story in 2 Samuel 13 where uh, uh, David's daughter Tamar gets raped by her brother uh, Amnon, and King David really doesn't punish Amnon, and so Absalom takes it on himself to punish his brother, and he murders him. And of course, that whole concept of vigilante justice is famous throughout all of Western culture and Western history. That's the whole idea behind Robin Hood. You know, he takes, there's this great injustice, and he goes, he becomes a folklore hero by fighting the bad guys. So we have a, closer to home, we have a vigilante justice example. Uh, Last summer, I was in Skidmore, Missouri. Skidmore, Missouri is famous because in 1981, uh, Skidmore had a, a murder. The guy's name was Ken Rex McElroy, and he was kind of the town bully and thug, and he'd committed dozens of crimes, including beating up and, and seriously injuring other people, but he never ended up doing any time for it. So one particular day, in broad daylight, Somebody shoots and kills him. There are 45 people who watch this murder, but don't you know when the police investigate, no one can seem to identify who pulled the trigger. To this day, this crime remains unsolved. And a little bit closer to home, did you know we had our own superhero in Seattle? Yeah, so this guy's name is Phoenix Jones. He dresses up as a superhero, you know, full costume, and he goes through the city of Seattle uh, with this uh, this superhero costume. So from 2011 to 2014, he becomes the head of a whole gang of superheroes <laughs> that are going through the streets trying to uh, patrol the city. And they became known as the Rain City Superhero Movement. And they're out, uh, the, a crime prevention brigade. And Jones says he took policing in his own hands because of a series of things that happened where he didn't see justice come. The first one was his car got broken into, his son was hurt, and uh, the police seemed to be disinterested. No, nobody seems to intervene in spite of the fact that there were witnesses to the whole event. The second thing that happened to Jones is he's, he's 
um, uh, one of his friends gets the tar beat out of him outside of a bar. Jones calls 9-11. The police don't bother to show up for quite some time, so he puts on a mask. This is the beginning of his superhero costume. He puts on a mask and he tries to create a commotion until the police come, but he's astonished by the fact that 70 people are outside the bar and nobody offers to help him. The most famous thing that, uh, that, that Phoenix Jones did was uh, September 24, 2011, there's a bus hijacking in Belltown in, in downtown Seattle. The, the bus driver's handing out some paperwork, some, some flyers or something, and somebody jumps in the bus, tries to steal the bus, and Phoenix Jones jumps in, pepper sprays the guy while he's trying to steal the bus. The guy leaves all stained yellow from the pepper spray, and the police don't show up for two more hours to respond to the call. See, for some people, the justice system just moves too slow or there's not satisfactory justice, and so they feel like they need to take matters into their own hand. And that's what's happening in the passage before us today. A rather large group, more than 40 vigilantes, they're frustrated by the fact that Paul is not being punished. Um, in fact, they don't want him just punished. They want him executed. They want him tortured. But the fact that the justice system doesn't work for them it causes them to form a death wish squad, a vigilante squad. They take an oath. They place themselves under a curse. Somebody's going to die, either Paul or us, but they're that determined. Unfortunately for them, and for most vigilante justice attempts, they, they don't seem to work out. They think that they're taking matters into their own hands. They think that they're in control, but the reality is they seldom are. So in this case, these guys are taking matters into their own hands, but we'll discover as we go through this text that actually they are playing into God's hands. They think that they are defending the honor of God, but they're doing so by conspiracy to, to murder and to lie. They think that they're in control, but what we're going to see through our text is that all through this God is in control. Take your Bibles and turn with me where we left off sometime before Easter. Um, Acts chapter 23, verse 12. By the way, this story would make a good prequel to Death Wish. So let's call this Death Wish AD 57. Because there's a lot of the same elements of the movie here. The intrigue, the, the underwriting narrative, it's got a sinister plot. And then when we get to the end, we're going to discover that there's a surprise twist, a surprise ending. And the, the big catch to it all is that we need to be reminded of the context in which all of this vigilante justice comes. So the context is this. Paul has come to Jerusalem on a mercy mission. And while he's there, he takes place in a purification ritual. Um, he's, he's in the temple complex when a riot breaks out. People are pointing out Paul. And then they drag him out and want to beat him to death. This causes the Roman military to intervene. They think they're capturing an Egyptian terrorist. But in reality, God is using the Roman military to protect and preserve Paul's life. Uh, the the uh, Romans drag him back to the, to the fortress, and they're about ready to torture who they think is the Egyptian terrorist. They're about ready to torture him for a confession, and they find out he's actually a Roman citizen who is not subject to arrest without charge, even less is a Roman citizen ever subject to torture, specifically to the scourging that he's about to have. But the irony here is the Romans 
are now protecting Paul from the Jews. The Jews want to have him executed. The Romans now become his protectorate. By the way, through all of this, notably absent is any encouragement or intervention by his brothers in the church. Uh, there, there's no uh, involvement from the leadership of the church, and I guess that's because there's not a whole lot that they can do at this point. But for us, the importance of that is how very much alone at this moment Paul feels. He feels um, really dejected, uh, despondent, and cut off. And it's the very next night after his initial appearance before the Sanhedrin, and we're now down to verse 12 maybe. The very next night after the appearance before the Sanhedrin, the Lord Jesus stands beside Paul and he encourages him. He, he literally tells him, take courage. And the reason that he needs to be encouraged is he's still got stuff to do. And the Lord congratulates Paul because he has been a faithful uh, testifier here in Jerusalem. But there's a promise that comes next when he says, just as you've done in Jerusalem, so also you will do in Rome. So there's a promise from God that Paul will get to Rome and will testify to his faith. So Paul realizes his desire to get to Rome is going to actually be fulfilled, but in much different manner than he had planned in the first place. But right now, Paul needs encouragement. The things are looking bad for, badly for I think badly. Things are looking badly for Paul, but the problem is that they're going to get a whole lot worse. He doesn't know that, but the Lord certainly knows that. And what assurance then in a time like that to know that, that God cares, that God is aware, that God is in control, and that God always keeps His promises. What an encouragement that would have been at a time like this. And that brings us to verse 12. Uh, 2312, when it was day, the, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. In that passage right there, three times, Luke tells us about this uh, vigilante death wish conspiracy that's going on. That, that here's 40 guys that have taken a solemn oath, a religious promise, that they're not going to eat or drink anything until they have killed Paul. Now, these guys are zealots, they're terrorists. They are known as the Sicarii, the dagger that they carried with the Sicarii. Um, they're, they're the terrorists of the uh, first century. Now, they hate the Romans and they resent the fact that the Romans are their overlords, but they also hate the religious leaders too. They hate the Sanhedrin because they are pandering to Roman will. So they hate the scribes, they hate the Pharisees, they hate the chief priests, they hate, the, they hate them all. And because things are not going as they want. Nevertheless, um, and this is one of those instances where even though they hate the Sanhedrin, even though they hate the authority, they're willing to work with the authority if it will help them to accomplish their own means. Now, I don't want you to underrate uh, how vicious these guys are, how dead serious they are. They are fanatics. They are ready to kill 
or be killed. Uh, we see in the paper from time to time about uh, religious fanatics who are strapped explosives onto their bodies and they're willing to blow themselves up, not so much because they want to die, but they want to take out as many people with them when they go. That's the attitude that these guys have. And it's curious then that perhaps two of Jesus's apostles were among these zealots. So we have three places in the Bible where we have the lists of the, the apostles, Matthew 10, verse 2, uh, Mark 3.16, Luke 6.14. So here's the list of the apostles. I want you to notice something when we get to the end. So Simon Peter, Andrew, James the son of Zebedee, James the son of Zebedee because there's two James here, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, so there's two James there, Thaddeus whose real name is Judas the son of James, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. So Simon the Zealot's pretty easy for us to figure out. He's a zealot, right? That's his name. He's part of this group. The other one that's kind of surprising, though, is Judas Iscariot. So Judas is his name. Iscariot may be that he's from the place of Iscariot. More likely, though, it is Judas of the Sicarii, these dagger men, these assassins. So that would really help to explain why Judas had this particular interest that Jesus was the Messiah and why, as he came to the, the last week of, 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 the, of Jesus' life, he became desperately discouraged with Jesus because he wasn't taking up arms to overthrow the Romans. That's not the kind of Messiah that, the, that these assassins are looking for. They're looking for a military-type Messiah. And when Jesus doesn't end up being like that, he thinks he's going to make the most of it. Take a few shekels, look for a different Messiah. So anyway, these guys are just not protesting the situation around them. They, these guys mean business. So in this case, they want to make sure Paul is not just hurt or in jail. They want him very thoroughly dead. And they set a trap. They go to the Sanhedrin, which again is surprising that they'd even want to work with these guys. And they say, hey, look, you go to the Romans and you ask if you can further interrogate the uh, suspect. And when they come down with the suspect, we'll attack them, not just Paul. They'll have to attack the whole squad that is protecting Paul at this time, and we'll make sure that Paul is killed. That's how deadly serious they are about this whole matter. Now, they realize they can't attack a Roman security guard and not some of them get killed in the process. They're willing to deal with that. They're willing to take the losses, the casualties, um, for the sake of, of eliminating Paul. And so they band together with the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin agree to this sinister plot. They agree to do something to have Paul killed. Now, people have often asked why these zealots, why these Sicarii, these assassins, would want to do anything with the Sanhedrin because they hate the Sanhedrin, and they do. In fact, this group of zealots becomes more and more powerful over this next decade, and Ananias, the high priest, these, these assassins, these zealots are so furious that he cooperates with the uh, Romans that when they finally take control of Jerusalem, they root this guy out and find him in a cistern, and they execute him. They, they have no love here. 
Um, they, they murdered him because of his pandering to the Romans. And yet here, they're actually willing to work with their, with their enemies. And, you know, terrorists will do that today, too. They'll work with a government that they're opposed to as long as it, they can further their own cause. By the way, we do that, too, right? We are co-belligerent. We will work with people who differ from us wildly on certain cases, like well, like the, being against abortion, you know, you, you, we will work as co-belligerents with Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and Catholics, anybody else, because we all agree on this subject. It's just that serious. So we will become co-belligerent with them, even though we have little or nothing else to do with each other on any other level. Are you following me? And that's what these assassins are doing. They're working with the Sanhedrin, but they, they totally hate the Sanhedrin. Now, to ensure the success of their conspiracy, I want you to notice something subtle in the text here. They approach the chief priests and the elders, not the scribes. The chief priests and the elders are Sadducees, those who are most likely to agree with them to have Paul executed. But they leave out significantly the scribes, who are largely Pharisees, who have just come to Paul's defense at this last meeting of the Sanhedrin. So the Pharisees are not included in this conspiracy. And so they, they move forward with a plot. You know, another interesting thing on a narrative level where we've come so far, remember back in verse 3 where Paul tells the, San, tells the chief priest he, he's a whitewashed wall. You know, here's another evidence. You know what? This guy is a whitewashed wall. You know, he's willing to commit murder, although he's the one who's mostly responsible for upholding God's honor and God's law. And yet here, he's willing to violate the law. He's willing to uh, undercut the legal process. He's willing to participate with this vigilante justice. He's willing to commit murder. Verse 16. Here's an interesting twist to the story. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went to the he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But don't be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush and have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him, and, how they are, and now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So it, first of all, I find it surprising that all of a sudden we've not heard anything at all that Paul even has a family. And here we bump into his nephew, in all places in Jerusalem. Paul is from Tarsus and Cilicia. But here's his nephew. Apparently, I'm reaching for this. Apparently, Paul comes from a very influential family. And just as the family has sent Paul to Jerusalem to study uh, rabbinical law, they've also sent Paul's nephew to study rabbinical law, which is probably why he's in Jerusalem at the time. This young man also has an access not only to the rabbis, but has access to the very council, the Sanhedrin, because he overhears this plot 
in the council because he knows not only have the conspirators, the vigilante group, uh, organized this plan, but he knows the Sanhedrin has agreed to it, that they're, that they're involved in this, that they're willing to become involved in this, and that he would have this kind of access uh, would tell us that Paul's family was very influential, that, that they could afford to have the, their young men study in Jerusalem and that he would have access to the Sanhedrin. So Paul apparently comes from a very distinguished family. Now, all during this time, Paul is yet an unconvicted, actually he's uncharged, but he's being held um, as a prisoner, um, kind of. He's an unconvicted Roman citizen, so he's, he's, being, he's under protective care, not actually charged with anything, and so because of that, he's being well taken care of, and he's welcome to have people come and visit him, he's just not free to go. So that's why the nephew can come right into the fortress and he can tell Paul about what's happening. Paul tells the centurion to take this young man to the tribune. The tribune listens to the young man. He hears him and then dismisses him. I find it ironic at this point if you juxtaposition these two groups of people. Here is this heartless, soulless, vicious, godless, pagan, overlord, Roman kiliarch, the, his technical term is the commander here, and how does he treat this boy? Well, he takes him by the hand, and he takes him aside and talks to him gently. Here's this vicious, heartless, pagan Roman who's treating the young Jewish boy gently and tenderly and kindly and grandfatherly, while all the time the leaders of God's people, those who are assigned to be the shepherds of Israel, who are supposed to represent the love, the mercy, the passion of God to his people, and what are the leaders of God's people doing? They're conspiring to commit murder. They're involved with vigilante justice. Verse 23, then he called two of the centuries and said, get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor of Felix, greetings, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the, Roman, with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Yeah, not quite right, is it? He didn't learn that until he was about ready to beat, beat it out of Paul. At this point, he thought he was an Egyptian terrorist, not a Roman citizen. Reading on, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when, I, when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him, on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll, ha I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. 
So Paul's life is obviously not safe in Jerusalem, and the tribune realizes that, and he can't afford to have a riot break out. He can't afford to have um, this vigilante justice running wild. He can't afford an assassination of a Roman citizen while he's under his care. So he decides the best thing to do is get Paul out of Jerusalem and to the provincial capital, which is not Jerusalem, but um, Caesarea and to bring him under strong guard. So look at this. He summons two centurions. A centurion is a commander of 100 men, and he has an escort of 200 heavy, heavy infantry, 70 cavalry, and 200 light infantry, 470 men. That's half his command at the, at the Antonian fortress there in Jerusalem. And he charges them to take Paul and provides Paul with mounts either horses or mules, and orders them to take Paul the 60 miles from Jerusalem down to Caesarea, where he will be safe in this massive Roman fortress where the, where the, uh, the Roman governor is. So the commander writes this letter to Felix, the governor, and it literally says, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. Now, you have to understand, in Roman society, it's very highly structured and, and ordered. There's a very defined social order. At the very apex of the Roman social order is the emperor himself. And the first tier of people were the members of the Senate, and the second tier were these uh, equestrian knights. The equestrian order, second only to the Senate, and regional governors were to be uh, identified and uh, s saluted, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, salutations, uh, huh? Yeah, this, they're supposed to be given this honorific title of most excellent. So when Claudius Lysias writes most excellent Governor Felix, he's not just using frilly flattery. This is the title he's supposed to give to someone who has a position in that high up of the hierarchy in Roman order, and I'll come back to this in a minute. But notice he tells the, the 470 men to leave at 9 p.m. and hightail it for Caesarea. They're, um, they're given this forced march from Jerusalem. Now, admittedly, it's all downhill. Jerusalem's at 2,600 feet, and they're going all the way down to sea level, and it's paved road. But these soldiers have to leave at 9 p.m. and hike 35 miles down from Jerusalem to Antipatris. Uh, the, uh, the test for a uh, commando, the commando test for, I think it's the British military. You, if, the, if you're going to be in the British military, the test for the commando is that you have to be able to hike 30 miles in seven hours, something like that. So this is a forced march. They've got to really uh, make time to leave at 9.30 p.m. and then hike all the way down to Antipatris. Antipatris is on this, is at the bottom of the hill and it's, it's in a, a valley that's surrounded by trees, probably the place of Rosh Ain. It's in today's uh, Israel. It's in this valley called Kafir uh, Saba uh, and it was named Antipatris after Herod the Great's father Antipater, so he's naming this city. It became kind of a way station. So the infantry 
hikes downhill 35 miles to Antipatris. They turn around and go back at that point, and the cavalry goes the rest of the distance on to Caesarea. See, now that they're down at the bottom of the hill, they're out of the largely Jewish population area and out of the trees and the, the places where an ambush could be given. Now from here on out, it's pretty much open plain and largely Gentile region. The chances of an ambush are greatly reduced, so the, the strong force, the, the soldier, foot soldiers, head back, and the, and the cavalry then takes Paul on the rest of the way to Caesarea. As soon as he gets there, they, they, they deliver the letter to him. Felix asks what province Paul is from. Again, this is not small talk. The province that Paul is from is Cilicia, which at that time, for a very brief time, was part of the province of Syria. And if Paul was from a different province, then Felix would have demurred, deferred, what's the word I'm looking for? He would have given the charge someone else to be able to investigate. But because he's uh, from Syria, uh, he determines that he's able to hear the charges against Paul. And um, Syria is governed. His, his upline guy, the governor of Syria, is Gaius Umidus Dumius Quadratus. It would have been easier if it had just been Quirinius. Remember back in Luke chapter 2 when Luke is introducing the... the the narrative of Jesus' birth, he says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the earth should be registered. Now, this was the first registration that took place when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. So now there's a different governor of Syria. He's in charge of Felix, who is a procurator. He's like a, a regional governor. Uh, this guy is an interesting fellow, this Felix. His real name is Marcus Antonius Felix Interesting because he was born into slavery. Again, remember how he's greeted. He's greeted as the second tier, most excellent, among the equestrian knight order. Here's a guy who's born a slave who now has a very high position in Roman authority. And the reason for that is he had a brother named Paulus who was very influential in the court of Claudius, the, the emperor. Claudius's mother, Antonia, and remember his name is Felix Antonius, his name is Marcus Antonius Felix. So Claudius's mother, Antonia, had freed Paulus, still with me, Paulus is Felix's brother, and made him a freedman. Then Paulus then uses his authority to get Felix a position. Uh, he, gave him, he got him a position in Samaria under uh, Vitendius Cumidus. So he has this minor position in Samaria. When Cumidus retires, then Felix becomes the, the governor in the area. He's a, he's a procurator. Now, I know that's not all that interesting, except that while Felix is procurator of this area, governor of this area, there's an increasing rise of the Sicarii, the zealots. And eventually, the zealots kind of take over and push the Romans out of Jerusalem. Felix becomes quite famous because of his very harsh treatment of these zealots. And even the moderate Jews become very anti-Felix because of his, his uh, harsh treatment with the Jews. The Roman historian Tacitus sums up Felix's character and his career in one of his biting epigrams. He says, 
He exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. Well, what we have here is one of the most fascinating, uh, illuminating illustrations of a, a doctrine which we call divine providence. And that's the name given to the idea that God exercises control over all things. God is supremely in control of everything that happens in the world, from the greatest events to the least of those events. And he's in control of all things for the express purpose of bringing his own plans and purposes to pass. In fact, the Shorter Catechism's definition is God works his providence, his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all of their actions. But to put it simply, whatever happens is what God wants to happen. There you go. That's the definition of God's providence. So in theology, we break it down, divine providence, into three dimensions. And they're hard to understand because they have nothing to do with the name. So there's conservation, uh, government, and concursus. So conservation, these are elements of God's providence. Conservation has to do with God preserving the world that he has made. Government has to do with God ordering all things to a particular end or purpose. And concurrence or concursus means that God often works through secondary causes. So we have this, that God causes something to happen, but he often does that through another individual, whether it's men or, or demons or Satan. God's working together with their will to accomplish his will. And so you could say that something could be at, at the same time attributed to the will of God or attributed to man's actions or because both are true. Now it's this latter dimension that's of particular interest to us in the text that we're looking at here because it's exquisitely illustrated in this example before us, this concursus or concurrence of divine providence. So in this case, remember where we started back in 2311, where Jesus is standing by Paul and telling him to, to take courage or be courageous because just as he has spoken in Jerusalem, he will also speak in Rome, that he will speak for God in Rome. That's the promise. So he sets him up with this promise. Now, everything that follows has to work within God's promise. Now, right away, there's this attempt to murder Paul, but all of this has to work within God's providential care. And it's working through the will of men, but also through, through God's will. And so we have these words in the Bible like somehow, or it came to pass, or it, as it happened, or by chance. But you don't hear words about coincidence, or luck, or, or, or a chance. So God's at work all along. And he's working behind the scenes because he's guaranteeing the outcome. It all seems kind of convoluted to us how this is all working out, and yet we're, the framework is God is in control. God is organizing this. God's providence will finally work its way through. And so it's, it's really odd in this text here because here are these assassins with their plot to kill Paul because they want to extinguish the voice of Christianity. And the irony is, through divine providence, through concurrence, that the thing that they're trying to stamp out, that they're trying to silence the voice of Christianity through Paul, they're actually promoting to actually have that happen because now the Romans will take Paul and protect Paul. And Paul will go to Rome and he will have access to an audience he could not have had in any other way. If Paul had gone as a missionary to Rome, he would not have access to the higher echelon of Roman society. 
But here, because he's brought as a Roman under guard, he has access um, to the, these people. The French have a saying that coincidence is an event in which God wishes to remain anonymous. So far from killing Paul, they're actually advancing the gospel. They're making it more widespread. They sent Paul on his way to Rome. But it's only the first step. And as we dig deeper, we're going to discover over and over again these phenomenal coincidences where God is at work and where God is fulfilling His divine purpose. But I think, too, we have to pause also to say that the narrative becomes confusing because we can't always follow when we're looking at the Scripture and certainly not in our own life how these twists and turns are ultimately serving the purposes of God. I mean, we trust that that's true. But for instance, it's hard to understand, am I talking too long, should I shut up? It's hard to understand that Paul, now that he's on his way to Rome, as a Roman, why he spends the next two years in prison or in jail or under house arrest in Caesarea. And yet, it's during that time that Luke, his traveling companion, writes the Gospel of Luke, and he does so by investigating original sources that are there in the area. And he writes most of the book of Acts while Paul is there in Caesarea. Similarly, it's hard for us, when we look at the situations of life, it's hard for us to see the providence of God until often you look back on it and you say, wow, look how God was at work in my life. I would have never guessed that at the time. And sometime when I'm when I can blather some more, I'd like to tell you about the, how I met my wife, you know, and how the unusual circumstances, which at the time were leading up to it, were, were very discouraging. And then, you know, God provided for me, and God opens up through his providential concurrence uh, a great blessing. You can see that in your life, too, that sometimes things looked convoluted and contorted, and you couldn't see God at work but you trusted that God was in control through all that time. And then as you look back, you can say, oh my goodness, God orchestrated all of those events. God was at work. God remains providentially in control. So that's how we see history unfold, just as God determined according to God's purposes, but at the same time, He does so through the intentions, the actions, and the choices of other people. So now Paul gets this audience at the highest level, but look at just the coincidences that we've talked about today. You know, the, the coincidence that when Paul goes to the temple to offer this purification rite, there just happened to be Jews from Ephesus who were there, who happened to start a riot, who happened to uh, necessitate the Romans intervening, who happened to uh, arrest Paul to keep him from getting murdered by the Jews, um, happens to use his Roman citizenship to keep from being flogged and placed under uh, arrest. He just happens to uh, have a, a nephew living in Jerusalem at the time who just happens to have access to the Sanhedrin, who just happens to hear of this plot, who just happened to be able to talk to Paul while he's in the Roman uh, fortress at the Antonian fortress, who just happens to lead him to the centurion, who just happens to be grandfatherly, who just happens to take him seriously when he hears this, who just happens to dispatch half of his force to protect Paul, and the only conclusion that we can rightly come to in all this is that God is in the coincidences. So too, God has a plan 
for all of our lives. And if we just watch for his leading, just look for how he unfolds his will, that he desires to do so much more than all that we ask or think according to his good purposes for us and according to his purpose to bring glory to himself. Now, don't limit God by thinking that he has to act and work as you would expect and that all blessings look good at the time. Sometimes they don't. You have to look at all the different ways that God works in Scripture, how uniquely God works to fulfill His purpose. And look at your own life, how uniquely God has arranged these circumstances in order to bless you and to cause His will to be carried out in your life. Okay, there's one last question here. These vigilantes with their, their death wish, you know, they're going to kill Paul or they're going to die trying, as much as they meant it, they probably didn't, you know. Some, some people ask, well, they promised that they weren't going to eat or drink until Paul dies, and Paul doesn't die. Did these guys starve to death? <laughs> they're probably not, because there's four exclusions that the rabbis allowed if you made a vow, in which case you would not be required to fulfill it. Incitement, vows of exaggeration, uh, vows made in error, and vows which cannot be fulfilled for reason of constraint. Yeah, that pretty much covers everything, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, so probably, probably they didn't die. They just say, oh well. The point is just this. They thought they were in control and that Paul was going to fall into their hands. And so they made these bold promises because they're so confident in themselves. But all along, they're not in control. God is in control. And it was they who would fall into his hands and they who would serve to orchestrate his purposes. And we can be confident that when God makes his vows to us, he has the power and the intention to keep them. And we'll go on from there. Let's pray. Lord, I think every one of us can look back at our lives and we can see remarkable circumstances. We can see your providence at work in your desire to bless us and your desire to bring glory to your name. Sometimes those blessings at the time seem like miserable circumstances. They seem like more like curses than blessings. It's only as we look back on them that we can see your providence at work in our lives. And that's true when we look at your word too. There's so many times that we're trying to follow the contours of the narrative and then so much seems like it's out of control and that you pull it back from the brink and you end up using evil for good. But the, our confession is all along you were in control. There was no point in which this was not working within your providential care. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes and yet we confess it to be true. You are God, you are sovereign, and you are omnipotent. God, help us to understand that not only in unfolding the Scripture, but in the, in the process of unfolding our lives too. And I pray that the consequence of that is we trust you. We rest securely in your sovereign care. We rest confident in your love for us. I pray that you will do this for your children and I ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.